For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Legislative leaders announce a special session to spend nearly $2 billion in COVID-19 relief funds. The creation of the special session allows the legislature to convene beyond the constitutionally required ending date on May 27th. Ryan, why would the legislature make this move? Boy, this is a difficult one to unpack, and it's one that unfolded very quickly at the Capitol yeah. this, this week. Uh, most lawmakers, it seemed, were caught off guard by this. Uh, I, I've been wondering what Republican leaders were together at some point in the bar, maybe in the last you know few weeks, and they're like, well, maybe we could do this. And then all of a sudden that became a, an idea. But uh, it is interesting, you know, Republicans and Democrats uh, supported this move, uh, which they needed because, the, you know, to call a special session, you have to have uh, two thirds of both chambers to, to bring them back. And, and it really, I think, is the legislature's effort to reclaim some of the uh, authority, uh, both that we've talked about on this program many times before, where the legislature has ceded a lot of authority to the executive branch. And uh, legislators have said, you know, we are far behind other states in delivering this money mm -hmm. to critical projects in the state. I think there have only been two or three that the governor has even announced have been selected out of the $18 billion in request for this money. Uh, and even the money for those projects have still not gone out the door. Um, it was also very interesting to see the governor's response to this. Um, <clears throat> governor Stitt is, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's any secret that, you know, typically whenever his executive power is challenged. Uh, his response is usually to be very aggressive uh, in return. Uh, and the governor now seems to be welcoming the legislature to the party. He's like, okay, you want, you want a part of trying to figure out how to spend this money? Let's, let's do this. Um, and this will unfold over the, the coming months. It'll be interesting to see, though, that if the, if the governor vetoes any of these appropriations, and then the legislature overrides those vetoes, if the governor then calls into some maybe legal question of whether or not the legislature can have the final say with a veto override or whether Congress has vested all of that authority with the governor. These are a bunch of questions that I think we'll have to wait to see what the answers are. Neva. Well, I don't know that it was that big a surprise. I mean, I think what legislative leaders have been looking at all through session is that there's still a lot of unfinished business, these mm -hmm. ARPA funds being kind of center on the table, and it does give them the vehicle to be able to leave next week from in the regular session and keep this concurrent special session going on where they can move on through the summer and do the things that they need to do. And, you know, I think you're right, Ryan. I mean, the, the a year ago, I mean, basically the setup was the governor would have the final say on these funds and where they ultimately went. Now the legislature is clearly uh, pulling the reins back and saying, okay, governor, you're part of the process, but we're going to be much more in the driver's seat on this. And I think, uh, I think that's what, uh, what really kind of unfolded here late this, this week at the, at the Capitol. And you have some interesting dynamics. I mean, I think there were 1,400 projects that um, had been submitted for ARPA funds, mm -hmm. uh, well beyond anything, it, it, the money that's available, $18 billion or something, some ridiculous number, I mean, mm -hmm. if you totaled them all up. Fascinating that these are kind of under wraps, that it, it's taken a lawsuit by Oklahoma Watch uh, uh, to kind of bring this out, that no one is willing to... Uh, uh, lay this out and kind of unpack who are these who are the entities that are asking for um, uh, monies out of the uh, ARPA funds 
and kind of how that process will move move forward. So I think there are a lot of unanswered questions, but I think the mechanism is now in place for the legislators to continue their work in a very thoughtful manner. And I think the, the governor, uh, let's face it, a lot of these folks are in the middle of a, a political season where they're mm-hmm. on the ballot uh, in less than a month, in some cases, in these primaries. So um, a lot of intrigue, but uh, at the end of it, there will be a long process that will go well beyond the summer and fall as they continue to um, as they continue to make decisions on this money. And, and as you watch legislative leaders roll out the way this special session is going to uh, play out, it really is a thoughtful process. And I think it's going to bring a lot of transparency. As Neva said, there's an Oklahoma Watch lawsuit right now to try to just get a sense of what are these requests for the money? I mean, $18 billion in request, and we only know two or three. Uh, so the, the, it kind of begs the question of why we didn't do this at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think that moving these projects through the normal legislative appropriation process uh, will bring a lot of light uh, to, the, uh, to the proceedings. And I think some oversight from lawmakers, buy-in from lawmakers. Um, and again, I, I'm hoping at the end of this, we can all look back and say, we should have just done this from the start. Yeah. Well, and let's remember, that it's not just the state that has these ARPA funds. I mean, we have uh, cities, municipalities, mm-hmm. counties that also have funds, some of them wanting to uh, work together with the state on projects that exceed their ability to do it on one-time funds, but uh, would give them the opportunity to do things that would be uh, well beyond what they normally could consider in any kind of budgetary uh uh, constraint that they would have at the county level or at the mun- municipal level. So lots lots of things going on. And at the end of it, I think everyone has an expectation that you want to see big things happen mm-hmm. and projects happen that would not normally occur if these uh, extraordinary funds were not available. And just real quickly, uh, Senate Democratic Leader Kay Floyd has, has said many times, this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Oklahoma to make investments in our future, and I think it's really exciting now that we're going to be doing it in a way that Oklahomans will actually see how our elected leaders are going to be making these once-in-a-generation uh, decisions. With just a week left in the 2022 legislative session, legislative leaders unveiled a $9.8 billion budget they are working on to get to the governor. It includes increases to common and higher education, pay raises to some state workers, $75 rebates for taxpayers for inflation, and $700 million for the business incentive in Northeast Oklahoma. Neva, what are your thoughts on this budget? Well, I think that they hammered out a good budget. I mean, it's a process. Uh, If it's a good budget, it means a lot of folks didn't didn't get what they wanted. But at the end of it, you went through and the big ticket items, starting with education, which gets the largest appropriation in in terms of the overall monies allocated, uh, you begin to... uh, you begin to kind of expand out. And in this instance, they had more money than they had last year, which was a which was a good thing. And they were able to do some things in areas like higher education with a, a large amount of uh, additional increase. And you were able to do things that we've talked about all through session. They, they did get the uh, pay raises for things like the troopers, where they're 400 troopers short right now. Uh, uh, pay raises for OSBI, other, other folks that have long gone past for years now, uh, having had the um, having had the 
the really needed salary increases. So I think when you look at some of the things that weren't in there, the thing that didn't happen was the was the grocery tax. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think mm-hmm. the, uh, the the difference in trying to do the rebate, uh, the one-time rebate, 75, as you said, uh, uh, to an individual, 125 uh, or 150 to uh, a couple that they'll get at the end of the year a rebate check similar to what they got uh, during COVID with stim- stimulus checks. Uh, that will be some relief, uh, and 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 it was done uh, with the w- with really the backdrop of this uh, economy and and the fact that uh, people are struggling, and so I think lawmakers were sensitive to the fact that they needed to um, demonstrate back home that uh, that they were aware uh, that folks are having difficult challenges now as we see inflation rise. So all in all, I think uh, there was less probably grousing. Uh, there was the normal loyal opposition from the Democrats. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that comes with the budget process. But uh, I think that uh, it did afford an opportunity for most folks to uh, have input uh, through that legislative process. And we'll see, uh, and we'll see if there's any last-minute uh, drama with any, uh, uh, anything that, uh, that happens in, in, in the closing days. But I think this budget is pretty well, um, uh, pretty well ready to go. Right. Yeah, I think about a week ago, we uh, would have had to have speculated, is, are we going to be in a situation where the le- legislature passes a budget and the governor vetoes the budget and we see a stalemate? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that's the, the kind of where we were at maybe a week ago. Uh, nobody could really answer that question with certainty. But I'm with Neva. I think that the, this uh, budget is one that the governor is going to sign. Uh, talk about pay rate. I mean, we can, we can talk about the, the lack of funding in areas and the fact that, uh, you know, common education, we're still you know, near the bottom and per pupil sp- spending in the classroom. And we're, even though we're raising, uh, you know, there's there's statistics out there that we've seen teacher pay raises in Oklahoma that have gone up considerably, um, that we are now competing with other states that are doing the same thing. And, and we know that we're losing teachers uh, to these other states because of uh, that competition. Um, but other pay raises that have happened, you know, uh, Neva mentioned the troopers uh, throw out there criminal justice investments. The Oklahoma Indigent Defense System, I think, got maybe the largest increase or one mm-hmm. of the largest increases that they've ever seen. Uh, that's going to be incredibly important there. Still not enough, but a major investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've talked a lot about how, uh, even though I disagree a lot with district attorneys in the state of Oklahoma and how they use their discretion, that they've got an incredible workload uh, and they're understaffed. They get a pay raise as well. Uh, and I think that, you know, that goes along with that OIDS pay raise. So we're seeing some parity there. Um, but maybe the, the biggest thing in here um, is something that, you know, Senator Paul Racino out of Oklahoma City talked about, and that is the record appropriation, $32.5 million to the Department of Health uh, that is going to uh, go to, or the Department of Human Services, excuse me, that's going to go to eliminating the state's developmental disabilities waiting list. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that we've talked about on this program. It has been a black eye for the state of Oklahoma for, Neva, how long now? For De- decades, for decades. Yeah. and it's a 13-year waiting list still right now. Yeah. So, and and uh, Senator Ricino has said that this will because somebody said, "Hey, we're we're finally making." Uh, I talked to my friend Allie Meyer from KFOR at the Capitol the other day, and she was the one who gave me the news about it. And she said, "This is happening." And I said, "Well, what's the waiting list going to? What's the years going to go down to?" And she said, uh, "I'm being told that it's going to go down to zero. Uh, we're wow. eliminating the waiting list, which." is a tremendous investment in some of our most vulnerable people uh, in Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, Senator Racino said this is a legacy moment for the state. It really is. And I think it's it's probably the most important part 
uh, of this budget package. Well, and one thing with that uh, with that particular issue with the waiting list and the funding is that it they are going to be able to get matching dollars, federal dollars uh, that mm-hmm. they can that they can draw down on from um, from Medicare on this. So in Medicaid. And that is a significant uh, part of this, as well as they worked in the factoring of they needed increases for what it's going to take in terms of personnel and uh, the additional um, money that will be going to providers uh, to be able to add the folks that are going to be needed as they as they make this uh, uh, attempt, very vigorous attempt, to get the waiting list down to zero, as they say. So uh, uh, I think a lot of people will be watching with interest. This is something that's been talked about, and always it's been the money's just not there. Now they have a fix. Let's see uh, if they can move forward and get a real solution to it with the dollars that are there. Yep. The State House began its hearings on the scandal between the Department of Tourism and Swadley's Barbecue. Lawmakers heard testimony from the head of the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, former Representative Mike Jackson. Ryan, you got a chance to attend the meeting. What was your takeaway? I, actually, I didn't get to go. Oh, no. I, didn't get to, I know, I know. I didn't get so I, I you know, I read about Where it. Where did you I, go, Ryan? Uh, <laughs> well, that's a good question. Uh, if, you know, the, with the legislative session unfolding right now, I'm, I'm out there just a, well, oh, yeah. every day. And, you know, I was there last night until... Uh, I think they shut down around eight o'clock. Um, and so if you ask me where I was last week, I have no idea. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a blur like uh, it is yeah. for most yeah, lawmakers. Mr. Chairman, I do not recall. I plead the fifth. Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, uh, uh, Chairman or, or Director Jackson of, of Loft, um, his testimony was was pretty consistent with, with what we've heard so far from the Loft report. You know, there were some new details that were coming out about uh, purchasing decisions that had been made, about the management fees that, um, that SWA, and consulting fees that Swadley's was tacking on to just everyday purchases. And whenever Director Jackson was uh, asked, you know, could you explain this, this consulting fee that I think would range from 5% to 20% on some of these things, uh, he said, no, they, it just seemed to come out of thin air. Um, and when you look at the other types of, you know, the way that we'd been operating this before had been, uh, you know, these, these folks, restaurant providers at states, these vendors were paying the state a fee. Uh, and in this instance, we were covering them and guaranteeing them a profit. You know, the state of Oklahoma taxpayers were guaranteeing Swadley's a profit. And in even an area, even in, I think, uh, I don't know if it was a month or a quarter where they did report a profit, they had an enormous travel budget over over it was over $165,000 travel budget <clears throat> that they included in their report to the state to still operate at a loss. Uh, you know, I think these are, I, I was visiting with a reporter at the Capitol uh, late last night, and um, these are the things that I think most Oklahoma, it's, there's, I'm not, you know, I think that some of these, uh, these things that we talk about there's so many layers to them, and it takes years to be able to kind of understand the different mechanisms that are at play here. But the Swadley's barbecue issue is something that every Oklahoman can pick up the paper and read it and understand, wait a second, this thing cost this much, but the state paid this much, and we gave them some arbitrary, that doesn't sound right. Um, and, you know, I, I anticipate the more this committee has questions, the answers are not going to be satisfactory to lawmakers. Neva. Well, and it was interesting in this first meeting, they were supposed to have not only uh, Mike Jackson with Loft, but they were supposed to have Stephen Harp, who is the uh, head at OMES, mm-hmm. uh, also there to uh, testify and, and, 
and uh, shed some light on some of these uh, specific questions in terms of the um, of the monies. And uh, he was uh, uh, reported to be out of out of the country and unavailable. So it'll be interesting to see um, how the committee chooses to move forward, uh, bring other folks in, and continue continue to kind of unravel all of this. But you're right, Ryan. I mean, when you look at some of this stuff, I mean, it just begs the question, how in the world did it happen? When you see emails that are now uh, coming out that uh, basically say, uh, here's an, here is an email uh, requesting $1.5 million with no invoice, no documentation, and a paper chain where people are just uh, uh, saying approved and moving on. I mean, that... No one uh, in business in Oklahoma, small business uh, or a major corporation, operates that way. And yet here we have the state of Oklahoma uh, really now seeing, uh, seeing this whole mess unfold. And it does put a lot of pressure on, I think, lawmakers to make sure they don't just kind of talk about this, come up with some information, and then move on because it can't happen again. And uh, these contracts, I think, are... Uh, are subject to the scrutiny that they deserve. Um, it, we want uh, we want to have uh, opportunities for businesses to engage and work with the state, uh, and there needs to be an open and transparent process. And we're going to overuse that word, um, you know, in in the coming months as a result of the revelations that we're seeing specifically with this one contract. A grand jury is criticizing Governor Stitt in regard to his appointees to the Pardon and Parole Board. After a months-long investigation, the group issued a 65-page report saying Stitt put improper political pressure on the appointees. The report finds he violated the state's open meetings law when he met with them as a group to discuss how they would handle their duties and dismissing the board's executive director. Neva, is this just another string of controversies involving Stitt? Well, it's certainly a controversy, and I think, uh, I mean, it was a fairly scathing report uh, by the grand jury, I mean, with a lot of specifics uh, uh, mentioned, and I think uh, when, when they start using words like grossly inappropriate or improper, um, I mean, that has to get attention. And I think uh, in this instance, I mean, when you kind of dovetail uh, this, uh, this look that the board was under this extraordinary push to basically do anything, cut corners, do what you have to, to make sure that we have a record number of, record number of commutations. And now we see the result of that, the 400 commutations that uh, were heralded as this um, you know, major achievement uh, by the governor. Now uh, there have been reports by the Oklahoman and others uh, in their analysis that show half of those folks have, been, uh, have, have gone back uh, mm -hmm. to prison since then. You know, so the 200 number that's uh, out there. So um, I, you know, I think that, again, when you talk about uh, the whole question seems to come back to the issue, if you're going to give this much responsibility uh, to the chief executive of the state, then there's an extraordinary corresponding responsibility to make sure that things are done properly. And I think uh, in this instance, the grand jury has spent a lot of time trying to, uh, uh, trying to uh, move through uh, a lot of conversations, a lot of information, and bring this report forward that I think uh, that I think deserves a lot of attention. Ryan. Well, I think that there are things in this grand jury report that are, that are important to look at. You know, Neva mentioned this Oklahoman story that talks about the uh, the rearrest rate of the 400 plus folks that were released by Governor Stitt, and and I still commend Governor Stitt for for taking that action and for being part of. 
the solution uh, that led to that historic day, and that was supporting retroactive application of state question 780 uh, for the most part, and you know taking folks that were currently in prison uh, that the people of Oklahoma through state question 780 said these ought to be misdemeanors instead of felonies, and the governor gave uh, his signature to legislation that allowed for Oklahomans' uh, current views on criminal justice to apply to folks that were currently sitting in prison. I think that the Oklahomans' reporting on that issue right now uh, is, I, I'm going to be very generous and say that it's just incomplete. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, if you look at half of the people who were rearrested, re- a huge chunk, when they say half, uh, were rearrested for technical violations. That doesn't mean that they went and robbed a bank uh, or you know committed some violent crime. That means that they didn't call their probation officer on time. That means that they maybe failed a, uh, a drug test for a probation officer. And that doesn't even mean that on the back end that those technical violations were found to have actually occurred. Um, and then you had other people that were sitting in prison, this happens every day, that have warrants, outstanding warrants in other counties. The second you walk out of uh, Department of Corrections, custody, you've got people that are saying, all right, well, they're free. We can go pick them up and put them in our county jail and and uh, arrest them for something else. So those numbers, I think that the Oklahoman uh, is reporting there are inflated. You know, and I do think that um, I, I I think that the grand jury and, and the the jurors of the that participate in that do take their job very seriously. But it's important to remember that they are often advised, you know, quote unquote, un- advised by the district attorney and his assistants. And so they lead the they lead that narrative, and I think that you can tell that because some of the things that the grand jury recommended are just copy and pasted right out of the district attorney's uh, political wish list, and that is they would love uh, to have a statement that says that the legislature and the governor can never make any sentence retroactive whatsoever. Uh, they want to you know, take away the ability of the pardon of parole board to, uh, and the governor to use exonerations to uh, lower sentences. I think a lot of this, you know, if you look at the policy positions that David Prater and many of his colleagues uh, in the District Attorneys Association took, especially during the, the Julius Jones uh, uh, case, you see those things coming out in this grand jury as recommendations from the grand jury. Uh, and so we reached a lot of policy and political conclusions there, along with what I think are very legitimate conclusions and findings of fact. Where David Prater goes with this from here on out, I think is any is anyone's guess. Uh, he is uh, on his way out. Uh, he's not running for re-election, and you know, this may very well be something that uh, his successor, uh, whoever that may be, picks up. Because you know, I think that there are again findings of fact that will have other questions uh, that may be worth. Uh, looking into at some point in the future. You know, I think it's interesting. I mean, one one case in point, I mean, you talk about uh, this whole process uh, that's now under the microscope. I mean, you have Lawrence Anderson, who almost has become a household name mm-hmm. in this political season because of the amount of mail and the amount of uh, uh, radio and television ads that have been running that have been focusing on the fact that this particular this particular release, he got out, he, he killed three people, um, and in 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 kind of unraveling all of this, we have a situation where he was not or should not have been eligible to have been commuted. I mean, he should not have even come back up for um, uh, to be on this list, and yet he was as they were pushing people through as quickly as possible. And I think, again, the public 
uh, recoils when they hear these stories, not just because of the gruesome nature of some of the uh, murders or all of the other kind of facts that have been spun out on it, but the fact that it does uh, it does give them pause about a process that is so serious and has to be fixed. And I think that's right. I mean, the the administrative breakdown there led to a, a tragic, heartbreaking, and just uh, unconscionable uh, uh, result. And I think everybody in Oklahoma could look at that and say, we've got to find a way to sh- make sure that that administrative breakdown doesn't happen before. And this isn't to defend uh, uh, Lawrence Anderson at all. I mean, the, the guy is a, a monster. But when he was released, it's not like the state of Oklahoma had you know Charlie Manson in their custody and you know it's an administrative decision released him. Uh, I mean, he was in for a 20-year drug charge. Uh, he wasn't in for a violent offense that I'm aware of, and he, he shouldn't have been released. He, sh- he was ineligible whenever he came up, and they need to fix that. Um, but I do think that this idea that anybody that's ever released from prison, whether it's uh, because of early release or because they've just served their time, um, the state of Oklahoma can't go, we can't create a policy that says, you know, we think that this person may have some propensity, but we have really no evidence, so we're just going to keep it locked up forever. It just doesn't work like that. Um, and I think most Oklahomans don't want the government to have, have that kind of a power. But I do think most Oklahomans rightly should expect that the administrative process should work once he was denied and he was ineligible again. He shouldn't have come up. And and if they had caught that, um, you know, I think that we would have a very different outcome here, and and a tragedy could have been avoided. And but, I think that 2019 three to two vote saying that he shouldn't be commuted. I right. mean, I think the question is, I mean, they took a thorough look. They had questions. It wasn't just that this guy had a drug charge and he was going to be okay, and let's put him back out into society. So there were questions there, and yet they cut the corner mm-hmm. and put him back up uh, for consideration a year earlier than he should have been uh, in the in the in this process. So again, I think you're right. I mean, we always see that one instance that can be kind of magnified and people can kind of pay serious attention to um, out of the out of the hundreds that were, you know, on the on the docket and were commuted. But it is part of this overall larger conversation. Stitt's Education Secretary is coming under fire for a letter to textbook companies. State Superintendent Candidate Ryan Walters warned the companies to keep critical race theory out of their books without actually identifying any textbooks that are violating the state law. El Reno Superintendent Craig McVeigh is calling Walters a political hack and says Walters should resign his cabinet position and drop out of the race for state superintendent. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this latest kerfuffle? Well, you know, El Reno is San Francisco of Oklahoma. So, I mean, you, you know, that, <laughs> oh, that, there's that, a line. That, li- that liberal bastion in, in El Reno, you know, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that the superintendent, huh. Craig McVeigh out there is, you know, probably lockstep with uh, Nancy Pelosi in Washington, D.C. Uh, or, or wait a second, I'm sorry, I'm reading from Ryan Walters' <laughs> campaign script here. Um, I, I think that Secretary Walters uh, has really... Um, divorced himself from uh, real grown-up policy conversations. Mm-hmm. And he has completely committed himself to making the most sensational TikTok videos that he can, uh, trying to em- uh, embolden himself and get embraced by a particular part of the Republican primary constituency and hope that that can either get him elected in a primary or in a runoff. And in the in the process, uh, you know, hopefully, I think, for, I think some uh, people around the state look at him as somebody that can draw a particular constituency to turn out and maybe change the turnout model in the Republican primary. I'm sure that there's a lot of other Republicans that are on the primary that would wish that he would, uh, you know, just maybe not put out a TikTok video every day. Uh, and, 
You know, I, one last thing. Yeah, you know, I think Secretary Walters has ruined uh, Zoom meetings for me in my car because every time I'm in, in my car in a Zoom meeting, people say, well, you look like, you know, Ryan Walters, oh, you know, doing your TikTok <laughs> videos from your car. Um, and so I, I don't know. I, I think that uh, he is he is in pure political mode right now. And we can we can probably expect this kind of rhetoric between now and the election. And then if if he's elected, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if he could ever pump the brakes on this and get down to serious policymaking or if this is just what his time as, sec, uh, as superintendent of public instruction, what it would look like uh, for the state of Oklahoma. Neva. Well, it is interesting. First of all, um, I mean, Craig McVeigh is the retiring superintendent in El Reno, so <laughs> that probably emboldened him a little bit to uh, <laughs> uh, kind of get right out there and engage in this conversation. And he he, uh, he certainly did that and uh, uh, made, some, made some headlines uh, as a result. But you're right. I mean, we have one of the most, I think, competitive, interesting secondary races with the superintendent for public instruction uh, in the Republican primary. I mean, you have a very competitive field, and uh, um, you have, in this instance with Ryan Walters, uh, someone who is uh, part of the uh, kind of team, if you want to call it, with the governor uh, running and uh, uh, with the expectation that there has been all along uh, both uh, support, I mean, in terms of just being part of that team, someone that the governor makes no apologies, says he's doing a great job, fully supportive of, um, has embraced him and certainly, I think, aided in the fundraising and other things uh, by being part of that, uh, just like we've seen with Attorney General John O'Connor. I mean, these are the folks that the governor brought in. These are, that's, this is his team. They are on the ballot as he is on June 28th in the Republican primary. So there is this concerted effort going on. Um, it will be fascinating to see what uh, what Republicans think about uh, who they want as the as the person to take over after Joy Hoffmeister. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think this is one we're going to talk a lot about, not only in the next month, but going beyond uh, toward uh, uh, toward the fall. And um, it's certainly something that I think has piqued a lot of interest uh, in in the Republican primary. Ryan Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KLSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org. 29.36.